This was the location of the palace of the king of Israel, a place where David would have lived and reigned. It was impressive, a place that offered luxury and power. It's here where David thought his walls were too high and his guards were too strong for his sin to find him out. This palace was a place where David thought he could hide from the consequences of his sin. But there is no hiding from an all-knowing God. Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church, man. We're excited to have you here this morning. I want to welcome our campuses, those of you who are engaging with us online and all of our guests. Welcome to Northridge Church. And man, I, I just want to say thank you for making this a priority. I know weekends are packed full of things. Some of you work on the weekend, some of you are off and you're trying to get some time with your family. And man, I just want you to know that we don't take it for granted that you show up or you log online with us every single week. And so thank you for doing that. And welcome to Northridge Church. And over the last five weeks, we've really been diving into the, the, the life of King David. Um, we've walked through his life for five weeks, and we're kind of winding down this series this morning. And, and my prayer for you is that God has really challenged you through this series, that through the booklet and through the messages and through our worship, that we have really been challenged by the Word of God and made some steps to grow in, in the Word of God. And the series really started when we looked at David as a young boy. He had the right heart and God anointed him to be the next king of Israel. And then he grew in his faith where he saw God defeat a giant before his eyes. And then we saw him build relationships with Jonathan, um, built on loyalty and trust. And then we got to this defining moment in his leadership where he had an opportunity to do something that seemed right, but his integrity wouldn't let him. And so we saw David as this godly king, this wise man, full of integrity. And then last week we saw his life turn go in a different direction where he chose some really poor choices that led a godly man who expanded the territory of Israel, a wise leader, a godly leader. Now he became a, an adulterer and a murderer. And we left David off in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, where it said this. It said, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And we just talked about how, man, the greatest consequence to our sin isn't the pain and the suffering that we have to deal with. It's a, it jacks up our relationship with God. And here David is now. He's married to Bathsheba. She's had a son. And really, he, he can, his sin has kind of been smoothed over. It's been covered up. Like, he can kind of move on. David's kind of at this point where, really, he's, he's covered his, his sin up good enough where he feels like, hey, let's just move on. Let's forget about it. And that's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you need a Bible, we'll provide one for you. It's going to be on page 248 in the Northridge Bible. I'd encourage you to jump to page 48 in your booklets uh, to take notes, or you can jump into the Northridge app or grab your program. And, and I absolutely love where 2 Samuel chapter 12 starts off. It simply says this. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And in just this small phrase, there's so much goodness. But let's start by identifying who Nathan is, because he's a new person in the story of David. We haven't encountered Nathan at all. And so who is this Nathan guy? Well, Nathan is a prophet, and a prophet is just simply a person who, who receives a direction from God, who receives word from God, and then delivers it to the nation, delivers it to people. 
But not only is Nathan a prophet, but he's also a royal advisor to King David. King David and Nathan had a strong relationship because there was many times where Nathan would come to the court of David and and David would seek Nathan's advice. He was one of the king's advisors. And I love this part of the story because it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now remember where David is right now. David's living in the midst of his sin. He's covered it up. He's killed Uriah. Uriah's dead. You don't have to worry about it coming out anymore. He's married Bathsheba. They've had a son. And David has kind of moved on from his sin. Let's just kind of forget about it. I'm the king, okay, no big deal. It's behind us. But it wasn't behind God. And what I love about this beginning is God loved David enough to send someone to him. And God loves us enough. And I want, the first thing I want you to understand is that God pursues us even when we don't pursue him. God chases after us even when we choose to consciously go the other direction. I mean, how easy would it have been for, for God to look at David in the midst of his sin, in the midst of cheating, in the midst of killing someone and say, you know what, David? Let's see how your life pans out without me. Hey, David, why, you know what? You make your choices. You go that direction. I promise you, there come a point where you come back. But that's not how God works. Even when we run from God, even when we reject God, even when we, we, we want nothing to do with God, the amazing thing about God is his love still pursues us, even when we're not worth pursuing. And that was David. I mean, you see this as David. He's walked away from God. He's rebelled against God, and God still chases after him. And I want you to know something this morning. You see, God's pursuit of us is is solely based in his love for us. And I think it's hard for us to really comprehend God's love because it's completely different than any type of love that we experience here on earth. Because our love for people is based on conditions. You do this for me, you've earned my love. You, 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 You make me happy, you've earned my love. But God's love is so different, it's unconditional. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, if you follow the rules or you don't follow the rules, God just straight up, no matter who you are, what you do, he just loves you. And there's nothing, there's no sin too great, no, no, no baggage too heavy that gets you out of God's love. In fact, this is what the Bible says about this in Romans chapter 8. It says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. It just goes on this laundry list of things that cannot and will not separate you from the pursuit of God's love for you. And some of you this morning, you think you can outrun God in the pursuit of God. Like, hey, I'm just going to live a bad enough life where God gives up on you. Bad news. It will not happen. He'll still chase you down no matter the choices that you make. And here David is, the living example of that. A murderer. (laughs) an adulterer, and God is still chasing him after him, and he sends Nathan to him. And this probably was a normal day for David. Probably David didn't recognize anything was different. 
Because there was often times where Nathan would come into the court of David and seek justice for somebody. He did this probably on a regular basis. And Nathan starts by telling David a story. It says this. It says, when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now the traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And so Nathan tells David this story. He says there's two men, a rich man who has a lot of cattle, sheep, and there's this poor man who has this really awkward relationship with this lamb. And I know you all are judging this man and his lamb, but I've seen your posts on Facebook where you're feeding your dog your ice cream cone or you've got like a puppuccino for your dog. Like, don't judge that guy. It's just like, it's like a pet in our culture. This was his pet. He loved this animal. His family loved this animal. And so the rich man has a visitor, and the rich man decides instead of sacrificing one of his many, his excess, he takes this pet, and he serves it up for dinner. What a nice guy. And David hears this story, and he responds. It says this in verse 5. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And you can see David as he's listening to this. Maybe he's sitting on a throne. Nathan's telling his story. And you can see David's anger even coming out. And even in the midst of David's sin, he, he projects righteous anger. He says, hey, I don't know who this was, but they must die. And not only die, but they must pay four times over the cost of that little lamb. And then Nathan looks at David, and he says these words. He says, you are the man. I swear it got silent, weird, and awkward. David, I'm talking about you. What a powerful moment. And I I want us to understand two things, really at the beginning of this story. The first thing I think we have to understand with our sin is sin must be confronted. Sin, our sin, you know, I think some of us, maybe we're lingering, we're hanging around with sin in our life today and yesterday, and we're playing it on the future. And I, I think we have to understand the longer we allow sin to linger in our life and flirt around with sin, it's gonna lead us down a path that David went down. And we have to learn that we must confront our sin before our sin takes us places that we never wanted to go. Sin has to and it must be confronted. But I I think really the thing that amazes me in, in the beginning of this story is here David is listening to this story and he has no clue it's him. I mean, we, all, we were all reading the story, and probably majority of us listening to the story, we've, we've heard David's life, and we know it's David, but David has no clue. You want to know how he doesn't? We know he doesn't have any clue because he's like, that dude must die. Well, David's just writing his own consequences. 
And isn't that what sin does to us? It blinds us to who we're actually becoming. Sin blinds us to the very person that we are. And you don't want to know the only place we can see that actual sin is in other people. How crazy is that? Is David is judging somebody else for the very sin that he committed. Because that's what sin does. We have sin in our life that has become so regular and so routine in our life that we've justified it for so long we don't even see it as sin anymore. It's just just who we are. And and the only time we see it as, as sin is actually when we see it in somebody else. And we point our finger at those people. I can't believe they would be involved in that. And it's the very thing we're living in every single day. Sin blinds us to who we're becoming. And here David is, blinded to the man he is. He doesn't see it. And and I, I just have a question for myself and for all of us this morning that I think we need to ponder on and really take serious is what sin have you become blind to? What sin in your life has become so regular and so routine, you've justified it for long enough that, hey, you just don't see it anymore? And maybe this question you can't even answer yourself. Maybe it's someone you have to ask in your community group or someone who knows you very well, who has an intimate relationship with you, and you say, hey, do you see any sin in my life that I'm blind to? Because you might not even be able to see it because David couldn't see it. He needed a Nathan to call it out in him. David, you are that man. But Nathan wasn't done. He says this. He says, this is what the Lord, the God Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed, it, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the, word will, the, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And now Nathan does something really strategic. Actually, God does something through Nathan very strategic. Because you'll notice there's quotations in that passage. What Nathan is doing is he's quoting what God told him to tell David. Those are the very words of God through Nathan to David. And what God does, I believe, is very intentional and very strategic with David. Is he calls out his sin, not generic sin, but specific sin. God delivers a message to David, I saw I know what you did, David. I know you killed Uriah. I know you slept with Bathsheba. And what he does is so intentional because here's the place David has kept his sin. He's kept his sin in the darkness, in the shadows. And honestly, isn't that where most of us, we like to keep our sin? We like to put our sin in this this back corner where it's like this hidden shelf that no one knows. It's kind of like a hidden bookcase. No one knows what's in there. No one even knows it exists. But that's where we like to keep our sin, in, in the shadows and in the darkness. So no one else knows. And that's where David kept his sin. He concealed it. He covered up. The thing we fail to realize is in the darkness and in the shadows, that's where sin grows. And that's where it feeds. And that's where it multiplies. We wonder why sin is taking over our lives because we've kept it in the dark. And here's what God does with Nathan. He says, David, no longer can you keep your sin in the dark because I'm bringing it into the light. 
And here's the reality of sin that we have to understand is sin desires darkness because it fears the light. Because in the light of Jesus Christ, sin falls and sin is destroyed. And I'm telling you today, some of you, you have kept sin hidden in your life for years. For years. No one else knows because you've kept it in the shadows of your life. And I'm telling you, if you leave it there, it's going to rot you from the inside out. It was to David. And maybe this morning is God speaking to you just like he spoke to David where he says, hey, you can keep it there. But now I'm giving you opportunity as you walk out of here to confess some sin that you've been hiding. Because look what happens. Once, once David's sin is called out, he recognizes he can't hide it anymore. And this is David's response. Verse 13, it says this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Right here is where healing begins in David's life. And some of you, you want healing over your sin. And God's saying, hey, I'm ready and I'm willing to heal. You just got to come clean with what you've been dealing with. You got to get it out of the shadows. Stop hiding because your sin is feeding there. It's multiplying there. Come and bring it to the light because at the light and at the cross, I paid for it and I've given you victory over it. And notice what, what David says. He's, I've sinned against the Lord. And I think those words are strategic because David didn't say, I've sinned against Uriah. He didn't say, I've sinned against Bathsheba. He said, I sinned against God and God alone. I've displeased the Lord. And this must have been a, a powerful moment in David's life. Maybe he fell to his knees and he broke. And Nathan responds to his words. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And so Nathan looks at David in his breaking moment. And he says, David, God has taken away your sins. Let's just pause there for a moment. Because that's a powerful phrase that really reveals God's forgiveness. And maybe this morning you feel like you're, you're like David, where you've done something so great, you wonder if God is capable of forgiving you. And I'm telling you, the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive you. And here is a murderer. Here is an adulterer. And God says, I've taken away your sin. And I think for some of you, to overcome your sin, the first thing you got to do is allow God to forgive you. And then because God forgave you, you got to learn to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself of the choices you've made. And God says, I've taken away your sin, David. But I think there's something about the theology of forgiveness that we have to understand here. Because I think for many of us, we believe that once God forgives me, I can just, it's just kind of, let's leave it alone. Let's, let's, it's not that big of a deal. We can move on from it. But Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but... But David, you still have to face the reality of your consequences. You see, forgiveness doesn't void consequences. Just because God is faithful and just to forgive you doesn't mean you don't have to face the reality of the choices that you've made. And, 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 and Nathan says, hey, you got to understand, David. You made your bed. Now you got to sleep in it. Galatians chapter 6, it says this, do not be deceived. 
God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And, and we see this truth all throughout Scripture. Just to name a couple uh, persons in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they disobey God. And guess what? God kicks them out of the garden. He says, you can't stay here anymore. Moses was told to, to speak to a rock. He decides to strike the rock. And because of those decisions, God doesn't allow him to enter the promised land. I mean, just in, in Samuel, we talked about a, a king named Saul. Saul chose not to obey God fully. And guess what? God said you can no longer lead the nation of Israel. Our sin always comes with consequences. And just because God is faithful and just to forgive us doesn't mean we don't get to face the reality of those consequences. And so here David is having to face those consequences. Verse 15, it says, After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had become to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the, sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused. He would not eat with any food. He, he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. And here David is seeing his consequences in real life. And, and I want to pause here because I think it would easy, be easy to think for many of us that some of you this morning have had a miscarriage or you've had a child that you've lost. And I want you to understand that when you lose a child, it doesn't always mean that's a result of sin in your life. That's not always the case, but in this story it is. And here David is, and, and I said last week that we can choose our sin, but we don't get to choose our consequences. That's God's job. And I want to take a step further. I want to go a little bit deeper into that. Because at the end of the day, we can't choose how and who our sin hurts. We don't get to choose the who and the how of our consequences unfolding. And, and if we step back and we look at how David's sin has impacted so many people's lives. Let's start with Uriah. Uriah was a good man, a man of integrity, and now he's dead. Not only him, but men who fought with Uriah in that battle are now dead. Think about Bathsheba, the scars and the bruises that she's had to deal with walking through this ordeal, and now her firstborn baby son is dead. And in Scripture, it says that the sword would never leave David's house, that there would be calamity on his house. And this isn't just the here and now. This is generations to come. This led to generations of David's life being impacted by his sin. It led to a divided kingdom in Israel. I mean, this is just the beginning of the consequences David had to face. And it should remind us all that sin is serious, and we have to take it seriously. Or it will take us places that we never wanted to go. And so as I, as I read the ending of this story, it really led me to this place where I was like, How do, what do I got to do in my life to not become David in this moment? And I think there are strategic things that we can do in our life, biblical things that we can put in our life to keep us from walking down the same path David walked. And I want to give you four this morning. The first one is this. It's simply accountability. Giving others permission to call out your blind spots, our blind spots. Now, I'd ask you this morning, do you really have accountability in your life? Have you given people, not a, not a large group of people, 
but a, a small group of intimate relationships, and you've given those people permission. They know you. They know your struggles. Have you given them permission to, to when you go down a road you're not supposed to go or when you're getting close to going down a road you're not supposed to? They're, they have permission to call you out and to stop you from going down that road. I wonder if David in, in, in his life right now in this season we're talking through had accountability. We know when he was with Jonathan, he had a, a strong relationship, but Jonathan was gone. I wonder if David, as the king, had accountability in his life to say, David, you can't go down there, and I won't let you go down there. I wonder how many poor choices we could save in our own lives if we just had people that we've given permission to stop us before we get too far down the road. We all need accountability but then secondly, I would say we all need to learn confession or confessing, admitting our sin. And this is a, this is a little bit of an awkward one. It's a little bit weird to, to tell people the things you're struggling with. It's not easy because there's this giant that faces us, this giant called pride. And our pride tells us if they really know what I'm involved in, will they still love me? If they really know who I am, will they still accept me? And I just want to ask you a question because I think a lot of people, you know, the love that you receive from people, they love the fake you, not the real you. And I wonder how many of you are tired of people loving somebody or so, who you are that you're really not. Man, it wouldn't be great if, if people could love you for who you really are and the things you struggle with. But we never give people the opportunity to do that because we fake it until we make it. We act like everything's okay. I don't struggle with anything. I read my Bible 27 times this morning. <laughs> and and I, I honestly believe in our culture today and in the church today, something like honesty should be kind of really important, but I think a lot of us, we're afraid to be honest. And people love the fake me, and they never get to real, really engage with the, the real me. And I think that happens through confession, being open and honest with people in your group, people in your, 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 hey, I'm struggling with this. Will you help me? This is what the Bible says about it. James chapter 5, it says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And so there's two types of confessions going on. There's one, we confess our sins to God because he's the one we sin against. God, forgive me. I, I, I've displeased you. But then secondly, it says we confess our sins to others. That's weird. I know in our culture, that's weird. It's, it's awkward, but I'm telling you, how much spiritual growth would happen in our lives if we were real and raw with people who love us? Say, I'm struggling with this. And, and it says this, hey, because when you, when you confess, you tell people, hey, will you pray for me so I can be healed in this? Man, our groups would go to a whole other level. Your group would go to a whole other level. If we were willing, maybe with just one partner to say, hey, can I tell you some things? And will you pray for me in this? The value of confession. I think third, confronting. Bringing sin into the light. This might be one of the hardest things to do as, as a Christ follower. Because in the story of David and Nathan, who wants to be Nathan? I mean, no one wants to be Nathan in this story because the last guy who got in the way of David and his sin was Uriah. And guess where Uriah is? He's dead. I mean, Nathan had to fear telling the king his own sin because he could have been in the next on the chopping block. And, and it's never fun. 
It's not an exciting thing to, to, to confront somebody in their sin. And I think for, for many of us, we just kind of push that conversation off to the side because it's easier just to kind of not, not go that route. And I think we fear two things when it comes to confronting people's sin. The first one is, man, I fear the relationship. Because if I have this conversation with somebody I love, I'm afraid it's going to hijack our relationship. And it won't be the same from here on out. And so we fear that relationship between a husband and a spouse. We fear that relationship between best friends or family members. And in the weight of losing that relationship, we just allow someone to linger in their sin. It's just easier that way. I think the second thing we fear when confronting someone's sin is that they're just going to turn their finger and point all of our sins out. They're going to get defensive. It's so much easier just to push off that conversation. But what I love about the Bible is it gives us steps. It gives us strategic steps on how to confront somebody's sin. It says this in Matthew chapter 18. It says, if your brother or sister sins. Let's pause there for a second because I think this is really important. Brother and sister means Christians, people who are following God. I think too many Christians spend so much time judging people who are lost, who have no desire of pleasing God. And that was never our role as Christians to judge people who don't want to please God. You know what we're supposed to do with people who are far from God? Love them to Jesus, not point our finger at them to Jesus. It says if your brother or sister, someone whose desire as a Christian is to please God. So now that we have that established, it says go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That's the pastors or the elders. If they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as a pagan, as a pagan or a tax collector. And so God gives us strategic ways to do this. He says, hey, you start with just a conversation between the two of you. You just go to them and you, you don't go to them with your, your finger at them. You say, hey, man, I love you. And I just want you to know, this is what I see in your life. And you have that conversation, just you and them. And the Bible says if they, if they still don't listen, you grab other witnesses. You don't, you don't grab just two random people, but you find two people who, who see the same thing in that person. And you go to them out of love. And you say, we see the same thing. Please listen to us. We're just trying to help you. And if they still don't listen, it says to go to the church. Now, let's pause here for a second. It doesn't mean tell everybody in the church. Hey, let me tell you what sin this person is struggling with. They don't see it. No, it's talking about your pastors and your elders. Let them confront the sin. And if they still don't listen, we treat them as a non-believer, someone whose desire is not to please God. And so instead of confronting, we, we go back to loving them, back to Jesus. So confronting, not an easy thing to do, but there's a biblical process to it. And really it leads to the fourth thing. Uh, uh, accountability and confession and confronting all lead to this last step, which is called repentance. This is the goal, turning from our sin. You see, a lot of us, we confront people because we don't want the spotlight on us and our sin. And so we point our finger at everybody else because we don't want anybody to recognize and see our sin. But the goal of all these things, the reason why you put accountability in your life, the reason why you, you, you confess your sins to others, the reason why you confront people in their sin is for the sole goal to restore that person's relationship back with God. From the very beginning, that was the purpose with David. God sent Nathan to David for one reason and one reason only. 
It was so that he would turn away from his sin and that their relationship would go back to what it used to be. And man, we look at this story and as we wind down this series, I, I don't want us to miss one crucial point at the end of David's mess up. Because this is, this is one of David's worst moments in life. I mean, I mean, can you imagine if someone wrote a book about the worst moment in your life and published it for everybody else to read? Yikes. And this is, this is the worst moment in David's life. And, and, and what I love about God and this story is God is the only person who can take our worst, our terrible, our sinful moments and use them and redeem them for good. And I wanna show you how God does this. Because while David was messing up, God was pursuing him. And not only was he pursuing David, thousands of years ago, God in David's worst moment was pursuing you and me. You might say, well, how? Well, let me show you. Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one is the genealogy of Jesus. It's that part of the Bible where we kind of just like to glaze over because we can barely pronounce the words and they make no sense to us. So we just kind of say, hey, let's get to Jesus in Matthew chapter two. But there is so much goodness and, and we, th we can't skip past parts of the Bible because they're all perfect and flawless with power behind them. And let me show you what it says in Matthew chapter one, verse six, it says this, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You see, what God did is he took David's worst and he redeemed it to become God's best. Because what he did through David, the cheater David and the murderer David is he brought him together with Bathsheba and through their line came the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, King Jesus. And I love that God can take a sinful man like David and he can bring the one who would overcome all of our sins in Jesus. And man, some of you think, man, I've messed up too big, Drew. You don't understand what's in my past. I don't, and I don't pretend to, but I know it was in David's past. And I know God used David to bring my savior to this world, to die on a cross, to pay for all of our sins. You know, as we wind down this story, there's just really one thing I want you to know. It's so simple, but yet it yields the most power. It's just simply this, that God loves you. And, and, and that love for you goes beyond your past. It goes beyond your mess-ups. It goes on beyond your poor choices. You can sin and keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning and God will still love you. Yeah, praise Jesus for that. Man, thousands of years ago, God was pursuing you. He was pursuing you. He was thinking of you as he planned to bring the savior of the world. And man, there's no baggage that's too heavy. There's no sin that's too great to get you outside of God's love. And I just think I would be a fool personally if I didn't give you a chance to receive his love. Because the only requirement of God's love is that you receive it. 
is that you accept it as God draws near to you and His Holy Spirit works in your life, that you receive that love. And I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. I don't know where you're at today, but I just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Man, I, I, I don't know who you are. I don't know your past. I don't know your present, your future. But I do know one thing, that God's love overcomes all of those things. And maybe you're here today and you're running from God and, and, and maybe this is your opportunity to accept the love of Jesus Christ. And it's really simple. You don't have to do anything crazy. You just have to say a prayer and believe it in your heart. And I want to lead you through that prayer. It's simple as this, God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken, God. And, and my brokenness comes from my own choices. I've sinned against you. But I believe that you over came my sin at the cross and you rose again on the third day to give me grace and freedom from my sin and so today God I want you to be my forgiver and my leader I want you to become my savior my master my lord and I believe if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart God will honor that prayer and I would just challenge you to do one thing I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy, stand and raise your hands or do a dance. We're not going to do any of that. I'm simply just going to ask you as you leave here this morning that you would tell somebody. Tell somebody of the decision that you made. It could be your community group leader, the person who invited you, the person who's sitting next to you. Uh, you can write on your connections card if you want to kind of keep it quiet. Just write Jesus on your connections card. Give us your name and information and we'll give you some resources to walk with Jesus. We will surround you with the right people. But don't leave here today without telling somebody you made that decision today. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us. And, and there's nothing that we did to earn that love, God. In fact, we don't deserve that love. But yet you still give it to us freely. You give it to us even though we mess up constantly. We make poor choice after poor choice. But you still offer us that love that isn't conditional. It's not based on our merit or our choices, it's just there, always. And so God, I pray that you'd remind us as Christians of that love, that although we fail and we fall short, you still are there to pick us up and love us. And we just praise you for that in Jesus' name, amen.